Okay, friends, thank you so much for joining for this very important and timely and sensitive and rich topic from our tradition and in contemporary life, abortions and halakha. Note that the class is not called abortions and Judaism. Halakha is one dimension within the broader framework of the breadth of Judaism, but specifically abortions and halakha. And there's a lot to talk about there, a lot of nuance and complexity. We really need a 10 part series, one hour of presentation and Q&A is hard to even scratch the surface, but we have a master teacher here calling in very late at night from Eretz Yisrael, from Medina Yisrael, from the Holy Land, Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig, who is rabbi of the Netzach Menashe mm -hmm. community in Beit Shemesh. You can go visit him next time you're in Beit Shemesh. He's the founder of the Magle Nefesh Center for Halakha and Mental Health. And he is a Ram in Midrashit Lindenbaum and the author of several books. I got to know Rav Yoni many years ago uh, when he was leading a yeshiva over there and I, I got to partake in some of the learning um, uh, with some of the students there. So Rabbi Rosenzweig, thank you so much for being here um, and uh, offering us this session today. Thank you so much. And uh, I always enjoy seeing Rosh Muli and speaking with him and uh, in general participating in uh, programs. Um, so thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, before I before I go into the topic, uh, let me just um, kind of like set set our our boundaries, set our framework, so to speak, in place. It's important, I guess, to realize maybe more for me than it is for you uh, that the conversation in the U.S. is very different than the conversation in Israel, mostly because there really is no conversation in Israel. In other words, there's a very significant Republican-Democrat divide and this whole pro-life, pro-choice uh, discussion, you know, that that exists, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S. And I think there it could get to, you know, it becomes a heated debate and a charged debate uh, with, uh, you know, very, very, I would say, strong feelings on on all sides. It's not to say that you can't find people discussing this here in Israel, but it's not a public debate in the way that it exists in the US. It's certainly not a partisan debate as if like, you know, uh, different parties discuss it and have different opinions about it in that way that you know from the US. So things are very different here. I, uh, even if I sound uh, like an American, I, I uh, made Aliyah when I was one month old. I grew up here my entire life. I was never part of uh, such a conversation. And so I'm not, I don't have an opinion uh, one way or another uh, in terms of the, uh, the kinds of things, once again, that, that you're used to discussing over there. So I wanna put that out there just for you to realize if someone's trying to guess like which side I'm on throughout this presentation, I'm not on any side uh, specific because uh, like I said, I'm not, I mean, I'm an American citizen, uh, maybe technically, <laughs> but, uh, I don't, I don't, I've never taken a side or discussed the issue from a political perspective or otherwise uh, in America. So that's, that's just putting that out there. Nevertheless, I understand and realize how sensitive some of these things can be. And I want to make it very clear once again, that my goal um, throughout this presentation is as Roshmuli mentioned, to talk about halacha um, and to try and present to you uh, some of the wisdom that exists within the uh, Gemara, the Talmud, um, and some of the commentaries that came after. 
And I'm more than happy for individuals in the audience to take issue with things that are said or disagree, um, and that's fine. I see myself more as a guide and a moderator um, of these sources uh, rather than an authority coming to tell you what to think uh, or who to rule by, okay? So that really is the goal. So if you feel like one of the sources doesn't necessarily jive with what you believe, um, that's fine. You know, like I, I'm not trying to convince you one way or another. Uh, my goal really is to just present uh, mostly. And of course, if, at the, if in the last 10, 15 minutes, you really want to hear my opinion, I'm happy to try and go into that. But that's, you know, that's really not, not my goal today. I'm not trying to convince anyone of everything. I'm just trying to teach uh, more than anything else. So that's uh, point number two. Um, point number three is that there is one thing that I can tell you um, that is agreed upon by every orthodox authority that I'm aware of. And that is that human life is sacred and not only human life, uh, but also um, a child's life and a child who is a, a fetus, uh, their life is also sacred. Um, and therefore, um, when we talk about abortions, uh, it's not a simple topic. It doesn't mean that it's always a problem to do it or that it's prohibited, but it's not a simple issue, meaning what hangs in the balance is serious, all right? And we don't, uh, even if we would say, and even when we'll see the sources that have to do with this, even if we would say that a fetus is not the same as a born human being, as a fully developed individual who breathes air and walks around, even if we were to say that there is a distinction, uh, that does not mean that the fetus is, so to speak, not relevant into in the Allahic discussion. The fetus is definitely relevant one way or another. And aborting that fetus uh, is something which is a considered to be a um, um, monumental act of significant consequence, and therefore not taken lightly at all. Of course, when we look at the big picture, we think to ourselves, okay, that's not taken lightly, but what about the other side? Meaning, what about the result of having the child, of not aborting the fetus, are those consequences taken lightly? And of course they're not, right? So then the question becomes, of course, what happens when we pit one thing against another? What do we do in that situation? And any, any result that we come to is gonna be difficult. There's no doubt about it. And that's why it's such a charged topic and such a charged debate, because whether you are on one side or on the other side, the result is many times heartbreaking and many times difficult to deal with and to handle. Um, and there's no easy answers uh, with regards to this. So that's my third piece of introduction. And with that, um, with your permission, we'll go straight into the sources. And that's what I want to present to you first and foremost. I just want you to be aware of the sources. Now, I should mention one last piece of introduction. Um, what is the definition of life? At the end of the day, to some extent, that's what we're trying to figure out. What is the definition of life? To be clear, this is not something that doctors, professionals, medical professionals are able to answer, meaning medical professionals are able to uh, define different things for you. Meaning if you ask them, okay, when does the baby start breathing? When is there a heartbeat? When do they feel things? When, it's, you can ask those questions. And of course, 
the person to ask is not me. I'm a rabbi. I'm not a medical professional. The person to ask is a doctor. But the question here is not when do certain things occur, but what do those things mean? Right? So what is the meaning of the fact that there is a heartbeat? Does that make someone alive? What is the meaning of the fact that now he has arms and legs? Does, is that what makes someone? Is that what defines a person uh, as living? Uh, what happens? Maybe they have to be born. Is that what defines? Right? The definition, the exact definition of life is more one for philosophers and uh, clergymen than it is for a medical professional. The medical professional is able, of course, to give you the facts, but what those facts mean seems to be a question that is more suited for those who uh, deal with the humanities. Of course, those individuals, myself included, as a rabbi, uh, don't have the answer, right? We don't know the, we can surmise what the answer is, we can offer a perspective on what the answer is, um, but that doesn't mean that we're right, and it only doesn't mean that we know everything. But like I said, the meaning of life, the meaning of the term life, is really something for theologians and philosophers. Um, and that's what we'll see over here. We're going to see some of the, in a sense, the Jewish philosophical the slash theological view uh, that has to do with life. And um, it's inferred from certain sources in the Talmud uh, and its commentaries. So that's what we're going to do. And that's how we're going to structure this. Uh, it's now 1110. I'll speak for about 35 minutes, showing you some of the sources, after which I'm more than happy to take questions or comments. Uh, and I'm, of course, happy for everyone here to join in, in the debate and to uh, give their two cents. I'm, I'm always happy to hear new things and to learn from everybody else. Um, okay, so let's begin. I'm going to share my screen, if that's okay. And we'll take it from there. Sorry, one moment. Okay, now everything here is in Hebrew, but don't worry. I'm going to be translating everything as I go, um, just so that you can see. The first three sources uh, that we have over here are the main sources that um, are used in order to discuss this issue. Okay, the first source in the Talmud is from Tractate Sanhedrin, and it says as follows. I'm going to read the Hebrew and translate as I go. Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Acha, uh, found something in a book. The book is called Agadeta de Beiravit, features certain sayings in the name of um, another scholar from that time period named Rav. And it says as follows Ben Noach Neherag Ben Dayanechad Ubeedechad Shelobehatra. This entire line discusses uh, the death penalty, which, as I'm sure you know, exists within the Torah, and that's not our topic today. We can talk about that some other time. Uh, but it, it discusses when uh, and how uh, such a penalty would be exacted upon what's called a ben noach. A ben noach is a noachide, meaning someone who's not Jewish, son of Noah, right? As we know, we Jews are sons of Abraham. But Noahides are basically non-Jews. So in which situations would we say that non-Jews are uh, liable um, for the death penalty? 
And when would they be uh, liable? They would be li liable if they, for example, committed murder, according to the Torah. If someone commits murder, then uh, the pun punishment for that, the penalty for that, is death. So the, the Gemara here mentions several different considerations, several different criteria. And then it says, Mishum Rabbi Ishmael Amru Barin. This is the important part. So Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael, um, claims that even if one, uh, God forbid, murders a fetus, Ubarin are fetus, even if, if one is to murder a fetus, that um, counts towards the death penalty. So in other words, the implication here is that a fetus is a person, right? Because once again, if I am obligated not to kill somebody else, if that is a prohibition, then I can't kill a person, right? But if, for example, you know, I shot a bird out of the sky, right? So even if you're, you know, definitely opposed to uh, hunting birds, you still wouldn't say that it's the same thing as killing, an, uh, killing a human being. So the question is, when you kill a fetus, does that have the same status as killing a human being? And what Rabbi Ishmael is saying is, yes, it does. Afala ubarin, Fanoahide kills a fetus, then that is the same as killing a human being. And then the Gemara continues to give a source for this. The Gemara asks, what is the reasoning behind Rabbi Ishmael's words? And then it brings a verse from the Parsha that we read on this last Shabbat. In other words, the Pasuk, the verse, seems to, to include not just a person, but a person who is in a person. How do we have a person within a person that obviously is a fetus? So therefore, we learn that, uh, God forbid, the murder of a fetus is the same as the murder of a human being, and therefore, one would be uh, one would be liable for the um, for the death penalty. Anyway, so what we see from this source seems very very clear that there is a problem of killing a fetus, and uh, there is no distinction being made over here between the age of the fetus. Okay, whether he's this amount of that age, this age, it does not seem to matter. However, in source two which is tractate Nida, um, it says as follows, Tinok ben Yomo ha-holgo chayav. There, uh, it clearly states that if there's a child, even if the child is one day old, someone who kills that child is, once again, uh, um, obligated to uh, answer for his actions. And then the Pasuk is brought, a verse is brought, Tichtiv, that any sort of any person, any person that is killed, regardless of age, that one is once again obligated to answer for uh, the act that they have caused. So this source seems to fly in the face of the previous one. To be clear, the previous source mentioned the killing of a fetus. This source mentions the killing of a baby who's one day old implying that the baby does need to be at least one day old, meaning needs to be born. So if the baby is born and someone, God forbid, kills such a baby, then once again, they are uh, held responsible for what they have done, and uh, that is considered murder. 
However, if it's a fetus, it's implied. It's implied from this uh, from this source, source two, that if it's a fetus, that there wouldn't be any consequences, at least not uh, very severe consequences like the death penalty or anything of the sort. So these two sources, once again, source one and source two, seem to contradict. Which brings us to source three. Source three is a very interesting source. Um, tractate Sanhedrin again, and it says as follows. This uh, section is talking about what's called a rodef. Perhaps you're familiar with the term. A rodef is someone who is running after you in order to kill you. Okay, what we would call killing someone in self-defense, right? So you're, you're running away from someone and someone is running after you. And in order to defend yourself in self-defense, you commit murder, right? You kill that person. So we would say that's fine because it's self-defense. Such a person who's running after you to kill you, who's trying to kill you, you're allowed to save your own life, even if it means taking theirs. That's a very, it may be, it may seem obvious to you, like it may seem morally or ethically obvious to you, but it's a big statement, right? It's a significant statement that it basically comes and says, while we believe that killing someone else is an abhorrent act and one which we try to stay away from under any, every circumstance, nevertheless, if it's a rodef, if it's someone who's running after you to kill you, and the only way to stop him from doing so is to kill him, then you're allowed to do so. You're allowed to take a life in order to save your own. The Gemara says, and this is the section that is important for us, Rav Chisda asked a question from Rav Huna, who said uh, what he said before. And he answers, Shani Hatam de Karad let me explain the question and the answer, and then we'll see why this source is so important. The halacha states that if a woman is giving, is in labor, and she's giving birth, and suddenly, uh, you know, there are complications, and the doctors see that there's a choice to be made. It's either her or the baby. So here the halacha makes a distinction. If the baby is still a fetus, meaning he hasn't yet poked out, his head hasn't come out yet, um, in that situation, we save the mother. We save the mother. However, the moment that the child has uh, begun to exit the womb, so the moment that his head right, can be seen, uh, at that moment, he's considered a person alive, and uh, we don't touch him. We're not allowed to kill him in order to save the mother. So long as he hasn't been uh, born, we're allowed to save the mother by killing the fetus. But otherwise, we can't do so. So the Gemara asks, why not? Why can't we do so? Let's say the baby has poked his head out. Why can't we save the mother? He's a rodif, meaning we said that if someone's trying to kill you, that you're allowed to save your life, even if it means killing him. Why do we not, so as, as the Gemara asks, why do we not 
refer to the child once he pokes out his head? Why do we not refer to him as a rodef and still save the mother? Why do we just let it be and see like what happens in a sense? And the Gemara, the Talmud responds that that's different. Shani Hatam, that's different. Why is it different? Because this is, in a sense, something that's happened Mishmaya. Mishmaya means from, from the heavens. This is something that, in a sense, is out of our hands. The heavens are the Rodef. In a sense, the, uh, the way that the world works. This is a natural event. Some commentaries explain that there's a difference here. Because this Rodef, meaning this little baby, does not want or is not trying, God forbid, to kill his mother who is giving birth to him. It is true that he is putting her life in danger, but it is unintentional, completely unintentional. And therefore, because of it so, so it's a different kind of situation and is not comparable in any way to uh, a regular situation where someone is actually running after someone else in order to kill him. So that it might be very, very different. Nevertheless, what do we see here in this very interesting passage? We see that when the mother's life is in danger, right? So if the baby has been born, they are equals from a halachic standpoint, meaning she and the baby are equals, and we can't prefer one life to another. However, if the baby has not yet come out of the womb, and he's still in the womb, then we clearly prefer the mother's life to the child's life. Does that not prove, uh, on, on the face of it, it does, but does that not prove that uh, the child's status as a living being is very different than the mother's status as a living being because we clearly prefer her life to the child's life in that situation. So that's a very strong source that seems to imply what uh, uh, to, seems to imply that yes, the fetus is not, in a sense, a full, fully fledged human being from a halachic standpoint, from a legal standpoint. So to sum up, we have three sources in the in the Talmud. All right, if someone if someone were to come and say, "Oh, I will look in the Talmud to see what the Talmud believes about life and the definition of life," then one would find sources that were contradictory. The first source talking about Noahide, the Noahide legal system discusses even fetuses as being human beings that one would be held responsible for killing as if he murdered a, a fully-fledged human being. But source two, the tractate Nida, does not seem to imply that, but rather only once the baby is born. And source three certainly seems to imply that because we prefer the life of the mother to the life of the fetus. Up to here, as I mentioned, is simply an, uh, a review of the Gemaras, a review of what the Talmud has to say on this issue. And as you can see, we can equivocate, we can go either way um, on this issue. Okay, so that's part one. But even though uh, source four, which I'm not going to read, it's the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet, he lived in the uh, 14th century, and the Ritva, who also lived in the 14th and 15th century, Rabbi Yom Tov, Rabbi Avraham Alashpili, uh, both of these, uh, what we call Rishonim, uh, that's uh, the nickname that we give uh, uh, Jewish scholars from that time, uh, even though they clearly state 
okay, that, uh, yes, that uh, a fetus is not a fully-fledged uh, human being from a legal halachic standpoint. The Rambam, the famous Maimonides, uh, says something different. And here I turn you to source six, okay? Maimonides, when he reflects upon that third source that I mentioned to you before, seems to take a different position. So I'm reading. It is a commandment not to care for the life of a rodef. So if someone is running after you to kill you, you do not have to allow them to finish the job, but rather you can save your own life in order to save your own, you can save your life. And, and, and by doing so, if Bezizu means killing the other individual, you're allowed to do so. Lefikach, therefore, Therefore, the rabbis taught that a pregnant woman who is now in labor uh, were allowed to uh, cut out the fetus from uh, inside of her, even if it kills the fetus, because he is like a rodef trying to kill her. And I Complete, let's complete the statement in the Rambam. If once he um, uh, takes out his head, there we don't touch him. But we don't put aside the life of the child for the life of the mother once he pokes his head out because this is what the natural occurrence. Maimonides' reading of the Gemara, of the Talmud, has led some halachic deciders um, to look at this entire thing differently. Because, let's think about it for a second. What's Maimonides saying? He's saying, oh, here's the deal. When the baby, when the child is the fetus, so he's a rodef. When the child comes out, when he pokes his head out, He's, he's no longer considered a rodef, and then the mother and the child are on equal standing. So look, look what Maimonides says. He doesn't say, oh, the mother and child are on equal standing at that point because they're both human beings, but when the child is in the womb, th then one of them is a fully-fledged human being and one is not. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that. He could have said that, and then it would have explained everything, but he doesn't say that. He implies that even when the child is a fetus, they have the same status from a human perspective. They are both human beings. But when the child is in the womb, he is considered a rodef. He is considered someone who's trying to kill the mother, and therefore the mother can protect herself. But once he's poked his head out, then it's like fair game in a sense. So the fact that Maimonides uh, couches this halacha in that sort of language implies that for him, the fetus and the mother are both fully-fledged human beings, but in one case, the mother can save herself because it's a rodef situation, and in the other, she cannot. So I sum up, okay, what we've seen so far, all right? And I know some of this is a little bit difficult. I've tried to simplify it as much as possible. But to sum up, the Talmud speaks in two voices on this issue, though, in my personal opinion, I would say that it leans more towards saying that the fetus is not of an equal standing 
uh, with the mother uh, and with other human beings as well, obviously. Uh, and that's number one. Number two, the Rishonim, meaning scholars between the 11th and 15th century who dealt with this question, um, also speak in uh, two uh, different voices. Some of these scholars, like the Rashba and the Ritva, which I mentioned before, but I did not read, uh, believe that indeed the child needs to be born to be a fully-fledged human being. But from Maimonides, we can infer the opposite, that in fact, even a fetus has that status of a fully-fledged human being. And therefore, uh, the mother cannot prefer, sorry, and therefore the mother would not have been able to prefer her life to his, except for the fact that we term him a rodef, and that halachic status allows saving the mother's life rather than saving the child's life. All this, all this stood before um, the uh, postkem, the halachic deciders of the uh, 20th century when they came to discuss this issue. And a very significant machloket, um, meaning uh, controversy, um, began between two very, very uh, significant Talmudic minds. One of them uh, lived in America, and you've probably heard his name. His name was Ramoshe Fein, and he was a very, very great halachist, wrote many books, and very, very well uh, respected. Let me stop the share for a second. Um, so, um, yeah, very uh, well-respected, very significant Talmudist. Um, and I, don't, I don't think I need to tell you that. And the other one lived in Israel, uh, perhaps less well-known to you, uh, the Tzitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Yuda Waldenberg. Um, he was also uh, a very, very significant halachist, Talmudic uh, scholar, um, and uh, uh, the two of them had a raging debate uh, for many years on this issue. Ramosha Feinstein was asked uh, regarding um, aborting a child who is uh, who it is learned is suffering from Tizaks. All right, now Tizaks, I am assuming that you all know, is a horrible, horrible um, uh, situation, uh, a genetic uh, reality that uh, affects the child in a way that, to the best of my knowledge, except for, I think maybe there are really rare, but generally that means that the child will, A, live a very, very uh, painful life, and B, that that life is, uh, terminal, meaning that uh, it won't be, I don't think they, most babies live past four years old, um, but uh, you know, maybe things have changed today and I don't know. Either way, uh, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And certainly when Ramosha Feinstein was asked about this, that was the reality. The reality was that as far as he knew, Tizak's children would not survive. In other words, they would be born, they would live X amount of years, but they wouldn't live past the age of four. And the life that they would have uh, would be full of, of pain and suffering. They could be blind. They could be, you know, intellectually deficient, uh, lots of other things. It's just really, really horrible. And Ramosha Feinstein was asked, because abortions 
uh, became more prevalent in America. Uh, he was asked whether or not it would be okay in, in this extreme case of a child with Tizaks, whether it would be okay to do an abortion. Rabosha Feinstein um, was unequivocally opposed to abortions. He said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Even with a Tizaks baby, he said, Absolutely. He said that if you, he, he used very strong language, okay? He said that as far as he's concerned, if someone, you know, aborts a child in that situation, as far as he's concerned, it's not mercy, it's murder, and it's not the right thing to do, and you can't do it, and we can't possibly um, uh, allow such a thing. So he was very, a very, very vocal uh, voice of opposition to abortions. And like I said, I brought a very extreme case to show how opposed he was, because you know, to say in less significant case, that's one thing. But even with Tizaks, he was very insistent um, that uh, that it should be done and that it should not be done. And I'll tell you that uh, in the uh, Talmud, I didn't bring the source, but in the Talmud, right, there is a distinction that is made between uh, 40 days, like before 40 days and after 40 days. The Talmud says in one place, that in the 40 days after initial inception, um, the child is what the Gemara calls maya be'alma. It's like water. In other words, he's not formed at all. And because he's not formed, there is reason to think that abortion at that stage would be more allowed. Rav Moshe Feinstein was not even willing to allow such a thing, not even within the first 40 days, uh, where on the face of it, you know, one could certainly make a very strong case that it would be okay, but Ramosha Feinstein would not hear it. Not only would he not hear it, he, uh, even when sources from different scholars, Jewish scholars throughout the ages were presented to him that seemed to imply that there were options, he refuted them all. And he said, this one's a mistake, and that one is, uh, you know, like it's a misread of the manuscript. And he went into it, and he really, really... Uh, pushed not to accept such a thing. I'm assuming, I can't know for sure, but I've heard this from other people as well, that part of this was political, meaning in the sense that Ramosha Feinstein felt from his perspective that he was fighting a trend. In other words, he was fighting off what would become from his perspective, like a pandemic of, you know, like uh, uh, people going and aborting in all kinds of situations. And so he had to like stem the flood you know, so he had to be the one standing at the at the front gate, you know, and saying, absolutely not. You know, I'm, I'm drawing the line over here, and that's that. So that's Ramosha Feinstein's position. I would read it with you inside, but I don't want to waste any more time, and I see that we're running out of time. However, Rav Waldenberg, who I mentioned before, living here in Israel, in a different climate, and uh, like I said, over here, the conversation you know, doesn't really exist in, in a public uh, fashion. Not that no one ever mentions it, but as I've once again mentioned to you before, anyone who's going to, you know, uh, do an abortion here usually will have to go through some sort of a um, committee. And that committee many times also has rabbinical figures and they can, uh, you know, like, and people usually also ask. I have been asked as a rabbi, I have been asked about cases of abortion you know, like people come to me and ask whether it's okay or not okay or this or that. Um, so people usually, 
you know, they, they, they try to get the best rabbinical um, advice that they can get, considering their situation. And uh, it's not so much of a discussion. You know, people just, uh, you know, they try to do the best that they can with the sense that they have and with the people that, that are around them. And that's that. It's not a public discussion. Revaldenberg uh, living here in that sort of um, situation, uh, I think was less perturbed by the possibility. And he writes very clearly about a Tysak's uh, pregnancy that an abortion can be had. And he even says up to seven months. He specifically writes even up to seven months. Uh, I don't know what he would have said beyond seven months, but certainly up to seven months, he says, for sure that there's no problem and you can abort the fetus and uh, aborting the fetus is not tantamount to murder and uh, that actually it's uh, a merciful act to do for the child in that situation and that one should you know take mercy and not bring a child into the world uh, that is just going to suffer all of his days cause suffering many maybe even to the parents and the people around him um and that's not that's not a good thing to do and therefore he allowed he allowed the abortion in a subsequent responsum that he wrote uh revaldenberg also considered the possibility of a down syndrome child i think back then they used to call them something else like a mongoloid or they had like a different word for it um but nevertheless, uh, you know, a uh, child that was uh, had Down syndrome, and today, I mean, I think we all know people with Down syndrome, or I do anyway. Um, and they, you know, thank God, you know, uh, very productive members of society and able to do a lot of things, get married and all kinds of other things. Uh, but back then, certainly things were a little bit less, less so um, when uh, these responsa were written. And uh, there also the family uh, came up to the Revaldenberg and was very worried about uh, their ability to raise and give a good life to a child with Down syndrome. And so they asked whether that was okay or not okay. Um, Revaldenberg says that it's complicated. He doesn't say yes or no in that specific responsa. He says that it really depends. If it's a family that having this child will really affect them badly from a mental health perspective, from other perspectives, uh, they really can't handle it. And like, you know, the family and you know that it's a problem. So yes, there would be um, an ability to abort even in that situation. He doesn't mention a certain number of months and doesn't mention exact criteria. But if it's a family that can handle it, that is able, that has support, that can give support, then on the face of it, there's no reason to abort. And in that situation, they should have the child and not go through with the abortion. <clears throat> um, to be clear, Rav Moshe Feinstein, right? The two of them had, uh, as you can see, a stark disagreement. Rav Moshe Feinstein relies heavily on Maimonides, on the Rambam, who I mentioned before, brings down Maimonides' opinion, discusses it, and proves from it that uh, abortions are prohibited. And this, of course, harkens back to the Gemara, the first source in the Talmud that I mentioned before. 
while Rav Waldenberg, the Tzitz Eliezer, does the opposite. First of all, he re-explains Maimonides so that it doesn't contradict his uh, understanding of the halacha. He brings down those opinions that hold that um, an abortion is allowed. And of course, harkens back to, to the Talmudic sources that I mentioned before, sources two and three, um, which seem to say that the status of a fetus is definitely different than the status of a fully-fledged human being. I once had a question come to me um, about uh, there was a child and they found that there was some sort of brain damage. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact case, but it might have been genetic, but I don't remember exactly. There was some sort of brain damage that the doctors couldn't tell you exactly like to what extent there was damage and what would be with the baby. <clears throat> but the mother was very reluctant to have the child, and so they asked me. Um, I felt that it was above my pay grade uh, to tell someone to abort or not abort. Uh, these are human lives uh, that we're talking about. And unless you're absolutely certain you know what you're doing and that you know what you're ruling, um, I don't think that you should be uh, necessarily dealing with these things. So I went to my Rebbe. Uh, Rabbi Rabinowitz, uh, who is, who was uh, the head of a yeshiva, of a school uh, in Israel in Malad, and I asked him this question. I believe the baby was the fetus was about three months old, um, if I'm not mistaken. And my Rabbi Rabinowitz said that they can uh, go through with the abortion, and that it's fine, and if they don't. Uh, that uh, if they feel uh, either that they are unprepared or that bringing such a child into the world would be uh, painful for the child, for them, uh, and accompanied by much suffering, uh, that they don't have to uh, go ahead with it, go through with it, and that rather they can go through with the abortion. So that's uh, um, something that I also heard uh, from my Rebbe. Uh, there is a, a post here in Israel uh, Rav Moshe Schoenbach, um, he wrote several responsum, uh, several responsum on the issue. Uh, and for example, in one of them, in some of them he's lenient and in some of them he's stringent, to be clear. But for example, in one of them, where the mental health of the mother was in danger, so if, the, if there was significant worry that the mother would uh, commit suicide, take her own life if she wasn't able to abort the child, um, the Rav Schoenbach allowed the abortion um, and said that definitely that's like the case that the Gemara talks about where you save the mother's life rather than uh, the child's life even though in the case that the Talmud is talking about uh, it's, a, it's a physical issue not a mental issue uh, but nevertheless Rav Schoenbach felt that these cases were similar uh, could be equated um, and therefore uh, also ruled leniently. One last line, and then I'll open up for questions or comments. Um, so uh, you see here that the issue is from a Jewish legal perspective uh, is fraught. It's not, it's not simple. It's not easy. And I remind uh, again that from what everybody, everybody, everybody agrees is that you can't abort a fetus just for no reason. In other words, a fetus is definitely 
uh, of significance. Um, it's if it's not a fully fledged human being, it is definitely hu a human being, you know, in potentia, and therefore uh, should be treated as such. It's not a simple decision to make an abortion, uh, but, but different uh, halachists will obviously uh, juggle the considerations um, and decide differently in different kinds of cases. I hope that uh, that exposition uh, helps to put certain things in perspective. Um, and I'm opening up the floor to uh, questions and comments. Um, should I be calling on people? Uh, okay. Uh, just, please, uh, yeah, please, you can just unmute yourself if you want to ask something. Okay. Um, I did it first. What you have here is still a bunch of men determining the basic functions of what happens to a woman. And frankly, it is none of their business. It is the most basic form of slavery to impose that decision by these men on a woman. It is up to her whether she carries that baby or aborts that baby. And it is totally, it should be totally up to her, not a bunch of old men sitting and thinking they are making history. It is slavery to do otherwise. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I understand. I understand. I understand your perspective. I agree with you that it's the woman's decision. I definitely agree with that. Rabbi. Back, in the, back in the day when I was very active in abortion rights advocacy and studying it at the same time, we were trying to counteract bad legislation, et cetera, in Arizona. Um, a subject came up as we were looking at different religions' perspective on abortion. And that subject was ensoulment. And uh, I recall, although it was a long time ago, perhaps it had more to do with the Catholic religions and others. And the question was, when does the fetus, does the fetus have a soul? And if so, what are you doing when you terminate uh, a pregnancy? And if it doesn't have a soul, I think um, back in the day, and again, it's so long ago, I can't remember, but in, the, in Catholic philosophy that the male fetus was, had a soul sooner than the female fetus. And so you could abort a female fetus lot later than a male fetus, et cetera. But at any rate, it had to do with the soul. Is, is there any conversation about that in, in the Talmud or, or halakha in general about ensoulment? That, that sounds fascinating. I have never heard that. Uh, that sounds really, really interesting. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that there is no discussion of it because uh, you should never say that about Jewish books. There probably is somewhere, um, but there isn't, I, I would say, a proper halachic legal discussion that I'm aware of uh, from that perspective. It, it probably is interconnected with the question of, of a soul, but it's never mentioned uh, directly. You know, as such, um, that's not that's not a direct discussion that is being had. That's what I would say. Thank you, Rabbi. Outside of the scenario of a potential birth defect, and outside of the scenario 
of a woman who would suffer extreme mental health or suicidal ideation. What is the Jewish perspective on the situation of a woman who's pregnant and who does not want to be pregnant? Um, once again, so I, I, I say again, the, first of all, there is no, you can't really say, <laughs> I don't really feel comfortable saying Jewish perspective. I, I've, I've just shown that there are very significant discussions that are being had between halachists about this and that they don't always agree. So therefore, you know, I think it would be wrong for me to, to call what the Jewish perspective is. However, however, um, as I said, uh, a woman, right, who is seeking to know uh, what uh, the halacha has to say uh, about the situation, um, I think that she would find that um, there is no, that, that generally if she's pregnant, right, uh, and there are no adverse effects to her giving birth, that she should, should she is not allowed to, um, uh, to abort the child because the child is a human being on some level. And therefore, uh, to do so would be uh, to deny that child its life. So therefore, she cannot do that. Once again, if there are no adverse effects, if there are adverse effects, you know, and that usually is why people uh, think about abortion, uh, then of course, once again, in that situation, we need to understand what's going on. And of course, every every post, like every rabbi, will say differently about uh, about different situations. Rabbi Rosenzweig, it's a pleasure yes. to see you. Um, I, there are a couple of issues that are interesting. One is, of course, that we know what's going on in in uh, in Texas and and it's around the country. Uh, this move against Roe v. Wade. And I think one of the distinctions that people are feeling, and I, I heard it in Judith's frames, is, is that there is a distinction between the government outlawing it and an educational frame that might educate people who are really concerned about the moral questions to educate them thoughtfully, sensitively, and wisely. And so the one question is the distinction between, like in other words, I'm, I, I might claim that what you've demonstrated is, is that if, if, if a person comes with a tzitz Eliezer to this to Supreme Court and says, you're depriving me my, my right to practice my religion as I see fit, which includes the ability to do abortion, then, then a law outlaw, you know, outlawing abortion would actually be a violation of my civil rights. So, so that's one question is that, does that make sense to you, that argument, that Jewish argument? And the other is, you didn't mention viability, and it seems to be a significant piece of the question in regard to the way American law um, is now addressing this question. Is viability, and does anyone raise within the postgame, um, not a, a time frame of you know this you know of months, but a question of viability because viability probably before seven months might might be realistic. Maybe just to be clear that I'm clear, <laughs> viability meaning chances that the child will, will survive. Meaning the child could survive outside the womb. In other words, if, if the, the fetus is utterly dependent on the mother, then one could claim that it doesn't have in, in, enough su sufficient independent status. Um, but once one can take a fetus that is inside a womb, take it out and it can survive, then then the the metric of the head poking out feels like a late metric. 
Right. So in other words, and then you're saying also that as technology advances, the bar Correct. would the, the the goalpost would move. The goalpost could move, and then then a different one could claim that a different moral education um, for women, for their families, for the rabbis that they seek, you know, um, advice on, would shift. I'm I'm still thinking the law could not prohibit, but but the ethic in the community could be um, articulated thoughtfully. Right, right. Look, I definitely agree with you, Rabbi Greenberg. And I, and I, when I said before that I agree with Judith, I meant it. What was, what, what was I saying? I was saying that, um, as you and I know, and anyone who practices uh, halacha knows, you know, the system that we go by is is very much a personal one. In other words, in the sense that we don't, uh, you, we don't uh, legislate these things on a national level. We legislate them on a personal level. So therefore, uh, you know, rabbis don't go house to house forcing women. To either abort or not abort, you know, a woman should decide whether she wants to seek rabbinic counsel. And if she does want to seek rabbinic counsel, then the rabbi, according to her uh, request and by her uh, desire and want, you know, should get involved and help her make the best decision according to her system of beliefs. So, therefore, obviously, I don't believe that uh, we should be forcing anyone to do anything. I believe that uh, women who once again, seek to live an orthodox lifestyle and want to go by a certain orthodox creed uh, should seek out those individuals that she feels can uh, direct her uh, in that way. And so if we're talking about the government getting involved, uh, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. So, you know, people, you know, can uh, obviously, you know, uh, countries need laws and this and that. But, you know, uh, and I know a little bit about what's going on in America right now, um, but I prefer from a religious perspective, simply, you know, that every woman should have the right to make her own decision uh, about what she wants to do and who she asks and who she seeks wisdom from and direction from. So, you know, that would be, I think, probably the best way from that perspective. And in terms of uh, the criteria that you're talking about, interesting. I, I don't think that I've seen in the post, Kim, uh, those discussions about viability. Um, so I don't think that I've seen it, that anywhere, nor have I heard it. Uh, but it's um, it's an interesting perspective. It's worth thinking about. I really don't know. I don't think I've seen it. I don't think I've seen it. Thank you. Any other questions? What happens in Israel? Is there a procedure to go through or a woman just goes to her doctor and they decide? In Israel, there is a, there, as far as I know, there are, there's a committee that you have to go through. Uh, but I don't remember hearing any, I don't, I don't remember hearing any horror stories. In other words, that, you know, people go to a committee and the committee says no or something like, you know, even though they really want to, I never heard any stories like that. Usually, as I said, most cases anyway are, are probably justified on some level. So, you know, as far as I know, uh, hospitals have committees, uh, and uh, and you go through the committee, and then you can do the abortion. That that's my my generally uh, uh, like I know I, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but that's what I know. Thank you. I see. Yes. Um, just just as a comment, um, it's very interesting to me that. Um, that these very old texts talk about 40 days. 
because it's at about six weeks of fetal life or embryonic life that you can first detect a fetal heart rate. Um, wow. So I, I think it's fascinating that 40 days was, was set as, um, as a criteria so long ago when we obviously didn't have those, those kinds of technologies. And, and just as a matter of information, fetal viability is probably down to about 24 weeks. Uh, many of these kids have horrific problems when they're born that, born that prematurely, but, um, but it has continued to, to become less and less time. Compared, I'm a retired pediatrician, so compared to when I trained, where even 28 weeks was pushing it, 30 weeks maybe, and now some of these, these uh, children born prematurely can survive at 24 weeks with, you know, with an enormous amount of intensive care. And again, many of them with significant neurologic, uh, you know, lifelong neurologic compromise, but not all. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and I, you know, I, I fully agree with, um, with Judith and certainly with, uh, with the late great um, Chief Justice Ginsburg, who said, you know, a woman's body is a woman's body. Get the government out of here basically. Thank right. you for your talk. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in order to be helpful for the American discourse, I just want to uh, just push this one more step with you, Rabbi. Let, let's, let's imagine that we're putting our head into the portion of the United States that is willing to sacrifice many other achievements for the sake of of this abortion question. And I wanna, I wanna understand from their point, because if we simply fight this battle as you know, we're the, we're the good and they're the evil, I don't think we're going to communicate well. So I guess my question is this, is, is, is there, is there some, some frame? I mean, look, just because um, a, a, an issue seems um, you know, kind of clear on one side, it is a woman's body. I think that everyone would be horrified if, um, you know, if a person, uh, you know, actively attempted to kill a fetus in the eighth month. I think that for no reason. In other words, it, it wouldn't seem so, so challenging to imagine that at some juncture, um, our, our opponents are claiming that life is sufficiently human to make this just wrong. It's probably not murder, but it might, it might be something akin to murder because you wait a month and the child is out and it's already would be survivable outside the womb. So I'm trying to grasp if we could, what the, do our halakhic resources provide a modulation that is not only about the mother, but about the deep theological questions about life itself that are being raised by our opponents? Um, I don't know. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot with a, with a, with a quite a deep question, uh, I have to say. So it's hard for me to, to be able to answer it with any sort of uh, clear, clear direction. Uh, you know, I, the, the legal questions are obviously technical in nature. With regards, to, so, and so that's why at the beginning of the talk, I said regards to life itself, you know, life is sacred. You know, Judaism has always viewed life as sacred. Um, you know, I can quote sources from here till tomorrow, and you know the, all of them, so I don't have to. 
Uh, and and therefore, uh, and this is someone else asked here, you know, like, can you abort for no reason? And indeed, you know, like, I don't think you should abort for no reason, you know, at all. And we have to take seriously, you know, uh, uh, the fact that, uh, that whatever the status is, a fetus is not just nothing, right? It's, it's something, obviously. So yes, that that definitely is a is a is like a standing staple. But without without a, I do not think uh, to answer your question that, as far as I know, that Judaism has or Jewish scholars, I should say, that Jewish scholars have dwelt uh, uh, on this topic in a way that is um, spiritually inspiring and edifying. Um, to the extent that you could use it to come to the American public or to the Jewish American public, uh, even uh, less so, you know, to uh, really come and, and give like what, what I would call a Mishnah Dura, in other words, that you're like a thought well thought out, you know, position on this. I don't know of any writing that has been done, you know, to really flesh this out, you know. So what you're asking is a very deep question in my eyes and worthwhile of research and, and, and uh, to write something. But I don't think that that work has ever been done, Not done you know, yet. as far as I know. And maybe, but maybe Rav Shmuley has what to add to that. I don't know. Maybe. I'm not going to add on to that at the moment, uh, just given the time. But I do want to thank you for this um, for this deep presentation and everyone for their participation on this sensitive and crucial topic. Uh, so thank you. And we know it's already midnight in Israel. So we thank you for staying up with us, uh, although you would be up anyways, as you said. Uh, friends, we hope you'll join us with Rabbi Arya Cohen next Wednesday on Beyond Caging, Restorative Justice and Rethinking Safety. Uh, also, my debate class on Tuesday. Thank you all for joining us and have a great rest of your day.